Chapter Eight, Part Four, of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Eight, The River of Doubt, Part Four. The morning of the sixteenth was dark and gloomy. Through sheets of blinding rain we left our camp of misfortune for another camp where misfortune also awaited us. Less than half an hour took our dugouts to the head of the rapids below. As Kermit had already explored the left-hand side, Colonel Rondon and Lyra went down the right-hand side and found a channel which led round the worst part, so that they deemed it possible to let down the canoes by ropes from the bank. The distance to the foot of the rapids was about a kilometre. While the loads were being brought down the left bank, Luis and Antonio Correa, our two best watermen, started to take a canoe down the right side, and Colonel Rondon walked ahead to see anything he could about the river. He was accompanied by one of our three dogs, Lobo. After walking about a kilometre, he heard ahead a kind of howling noise, which he thought was made by spider-monkeys. He walked in the direction of the sound, and Lobo ran ahead. In a minute he heard Lobo yell with pain, and then, still yelping, came toward him, while the creature that was howling also approached, evidently in pursuit. In a moment a second yell from Lobo, followed by silence, announced that he was dead, and the sound of the howling when near convinced Rondon that the dog had been killed by an Indian, doubtless with two arrows. Probably the Indian was howling to lure the spider-monkeys toward him. Rondon fired his rifle in the air to warn off the Indian or Indians, who in all probability had never seen a civilized man, and certainly could not imagine that one was in the neighborhood. He then returned to the foot of the rapids, where the portage was still going on, and in company with Lyra, Kermit, and Antonio Parekis, the Indian, walked back to where Lobo's body lay. Sure enough he found him, slain by two arrows. One arrowhead was in him, and nearby was a strange stick used in the merry primitive method of fishing of all these Indians. Antonio recognized its purpose. The Indian, who were apparently two or three in number, had fled. Some beads and trinkets were left on the spot, to show that we were not angry and were friendly. Meanwhile Cherry stayed at the head, and I at the foot of the portage as guards. Luis and Antonio Correa brought down one canoe safely. The next was the new canoe, which was very large and heavy, being made of wood that would not float. In the rapids the rope broke, and the canoe was lost, Luis being nearly drowned. It was a very bad thing to lose the canoe, but it was even worse to lose the rope and pulleys. This meant that it would be physically impossible to hoist big canoes up even small hills or rocky hillocks, such as had been so frequent beside the many rapids we had encountered. It was not wise to spend the four days necessary to build new canoes where we were, in danger of attack from the Indians. Moreover, new rapids might be very near, in which case the new canoes would hamper us. 
yet the four remaining canoes would not carry all the loads and all the men, no matter how we cut the loads down, and we intended to cut everything down at once. We had been gone eighteen days. We had used over a third of our food. We had gone only one hundred and twenty-five kilometers, and it was probable that we had at least five times, perhaps six or seven times, this distance still to go. We had taken a fortnight to descend rapids, amounting in the aggregate to less than seventy yards of fall. A very few yards of fall makes a dangerous rapid when the river is swollen and swift and there are obstructions. We had only one aneroid to determine our altitude, and therefore could make merely a loose approximation to it, but we probably had between two and three times this descent in the aggregate of rapids ahead of us. So far the country had offered little in the way of food except palm-tops. We had lost four canoes and one man. We were in the country of wild Indians, who shot well with their bows. It bethewed us to go warily, but also to make all speed possible, if we were to avoid serious trouble. The best plan seemed to be to march thirteen men down along the bank, while the remaining canoes, lashed two and two, floated down beside them. If after two or three days we found no bad rapids, and there seemed a reasonable chance of going some distance at decent speed, we could then build the new canoes, preferably two small ones, this time instead of one big one. We left all the baggage we could. We were already down as far as comfort would permit, but we now struck off much of the comfort. Cherry, Kermit, and I had been sleeping under a very light fly, and there was another small light tent for one person, kept for possible emergencies. The last was given to me for my cot, and all five of the others swung their hammocks under the big fly. This meant that we left two big and heavy tents behind. A box of surveying instruments was also abandoned. Each of us got his personal belongings down to one box of duffel bag, although there was only a small diminution thus made, because we had so little that the only way to make a serious diminution was to restrict ourselves to the clothes on our backs. The biting flies and ants were to us a source of discomfort, and at times of what could fairly be called torment. But to the camaradas, most of whom went barefoot, or only wore sandals, and they never did or would wear shoes, the effect was more serious. They wrapped their legs and feet in pieces of canvas or hide, and the feet of three of them became so swollen that they were crippled, and could not walk any distance. The doctor, whose courage and cheerfulness never flagged, took excellent care of them. Thanks to him, there had been among them hitherto but one or two slight cases of fever. He administered to each man daily a half gram, nearly eight grains, of quinine, and every third or fourth day a double dose. The following morning Colonel Rondon, Lyra, Kermit, Cherry, and nine of the camaradas, started in a single file down the bank, while the doctor and I went in the two double canoes, with six camaradas, three of them the invalids with swollen feet. We halted continually, as we went about three times as fast as the walkers, and we traced the course of the river. After forty minutes actual going in the boats, we came to some rapids. 
the unloaded canoes ran them without difficulty, while the loads were portaged. In an hour and a half we were again under way, but in ten minutes came to other rapids, where the river ran among islands, and there were several big curls. The clumsy, heavily laden dugouts, lashed in couples, were unwieldy and hard to handle. The rapids came just round a sharp bend, and we got caught in the upper part of the swift water, and had to run the first set of rapids in consequence. We in the leading pair of dugouts were within an ace of coming to grief on some big boulders, against which we were swept by a cross-current at the turn. All of us paddling hard, scraping and bumping, we got through by the skin of our teeth, and managed to make the bank and moor our dugouts. It was a narrow escape from grave disaster. The second pair of lashed dugouts profited by our experience, and made the run, with risk, but with less risk, and moored beside us. Then all the loads were taken out, and the empty canoes were run down through the least dangerous channels among the islands. This was a long portage, and we camped at the foot of the rapids, having made nearly seven kilometers. Here a little river, a rapid stream of volume equal to the Duvida, at the point where we first embarked, joined from the west. Colonel Rondon and Kermit came to it first, and the former named it Rio Kermit. There was in it a waterfall, about six or eight feet high, just above the junction. Here we found plenty of fish. Lira caught two paco, good-sized, deep-bodied fish. They were delicious eating. Antonio Zaparekis said that these fish never came up heavy rapids, in which there were falls they had to jump. We could only hope that he was correct, as in that case the rapids we would encounter in the future would rarely be so serious as to necessitate our dragging the heavy dugouts overland. Passing the rapids we had hitherto encountered had meant severe labor and some danger. But the event showed that he was mistaken. The worst rapids were ahead of us. While our course as a whole had been almost due north, and sometimes east of north, yet where there were rapids the river had generally, although not always, turned westward. This seemed to indicate that to the east of us there was a low northward projection of the central plateau, across which we had travelled on muleback. This is the kind of projection that appears on the maps of this region as the Sierra. Probably it sent low spurs to the west, and the farthest point of these spurs now and then caused rapids in our course, for the rapids generally came where there were hills, and for the moment deflected the river westward from its general downhill trend to the north. There was no longer any question that the Duvida was a big river, a river of real importance, it was not a minor affluent of some other affluent. But we were still wholly in the dark as to where it came out. It was still possible, although exceedingly improbable, that it entered the Gai Parana, as another river of substantially the same size, near its mouth. It was much more likely, but not probable, that it entered the Tapajos. It was probable, although far from certain, that it entered the Madeira Lawn Down, near its point of junction with the Amazon. In this event it was likely, although again far from certain, that its mouth would prove to be the Aripuanan. 
the Aripoanan does not appear on the maps as a river of any size. On a good standard map of South America, which I had with me, its name does not appear at all, although a dotted indication of a small river or creek at about the right place probably represents it. Nevertheless, from the report of one of his lieutenants, who had examined its mouth, and from the stories of the rubber-gatherers, or seringueros, Colonel Rondon had come to the conclusion that this was the largest affluent of the Madeira, with such a body of water that it must have a big drainage basin. He thought that the Duvida was probably one of its head streams, although every existing map represented the lay of the land to be such as to render impossible the existence of such a river system and drainage basin. The rubber gatherers reported that they had gone many days' journey up the river to a point where there were a series of heavy rapids with above them the junction point of two large rivers, one entering from the west. Beyond this they had difficulties because of the hostility of the Indians, and where the junction point was no one could say. On the chance Colonel Rondon had directed one of his subordinate officers, Lieutenant Pyrenees, to try to meet us, with boats and provisions, by ascending the Aripuanan to the point of entry of its first big affluent. This was the course followed when Amilcar had been directed to try to meet the explorers, who in 1909 came down the Gaiparana. At that time the effort was a failure, and the two parties never met, but we might have better luck, and in any event the chance was worth taking. On the morning following our camping by the mouth of the Rio Kermit, Colonel Rondon took a good deal of pains in getting a big post set up at the entry of the smaller river into the Duvida. Then he summoned me and all the others to attend the ceremony of its erection. We found the camaradas drawn up in line, and the colonel preparing to read aloud the orders of the day. To the post was nailed a board, with Rio Kermit on it, and the colonel read the orders, reciting that by the direction of the Brazilian government, and inasmuch as the unknown river was evidently a great river, he formally christened it the Rio Roosevelt. This was a complete surprise to me. Both Laura Miller and Colonel Rondon had spoken to me on the subject, and I had urged, and Kermit had urged, as strongly as possible, that the name be kept as Rio da Duvida. We felt that the River of Doubt was an unusually good name, and it is always well to keep a name of this character. But my kind friends insisted otherwise, and it would have been churlish of me to object longer. I was much touched by their action, and by the ceremony itself. At the conclusion of the reading, Colonel Rondon led in cheers for the United States, and then for me and for Kermit, and the camaradas cheered with a will. I proposed three cheers for Brazil, and then for Colonel Rondon and Lyra, and the doctor, and then for all the camaradas. Then Lyra said that everybody had been cheered except Cherry, and so we all gave three cheers for Cherry, and the meeting broke up in high good humor. Immediately afterward, the walkers set off on their march downstream, looking for good canoe trees. In a quarter of an hour we followed with the canoes. As often as we overtook them we halted, 
until they had again gone a good distance ahead. They soon found fresh Indian sign, and actually heard the Indians, but the latter fled in panic. They came on a little Indian fishing village, just abandoned. The three low, oblong huts of palm leaves had each an entrance for a man on all fours, but no other opening. They were dark inside, doubtless as a protection against the swarms of biting flies. On a pole in this village an axe and a knife and some strings of red beads were left, with the hope that the Indians would return, find the gifts, and realize that we were friendly. We saw further Indian sign on both sides of the river. After about two hours and a half, we came on a little river entering from the east. It was broad but shallow, and at the point of entrance rushed down, green and white, over a sharply inclined sheet of rock. It was a lovely sight, and we halted to admire it. Then on we went, until, when we had covered about eight kilometers, we came on a stretch of rapids. The canoes ran them with about a third of the loads, the other loads being carried on the men's shoulders. At the foot of the rapids we camped, as there were several good canoe trees near, and we had decided to build two rather small canoes. After dark, the stars came out, but in the deep forest the glory of the stars in the night of the sky, the serene radiance of the moon, the splendor of sunrise and sunset, are never seen as they are seen on the vast open plains. The following day, the 19th, the men began work on the canoes. The ill-fated big canoe had been made of wood so hard that it was difficult to work, and so heavy that the chips sank like lead in the water. But these trees were araputangas, with wood which was easier to work and which floated. Great buttresses or flanges jutted out from their trunks at the base, and they bore big hard nuts or fruits which stood erect at the ends of the branches. The first tree felled proved rotten, and moreover it was chopped so that it smashed a number of lesser trees into the kitchen, overthrowing everything, but not inflicting serious damage. Hard-working, willing, and tough, though the camaradas were, they naturally did not have the skill of northern lumberjacks. We hoped to finish the two canoes in three days. A space was cleared in the forest for our tents. Among the taller trees grew huge-leafed pacovas, or wild bananas. We bathed and swam in the river, although in it we caught piranhas. Carregadores ants swarmed all around our camp. As many of the nearest of their holes as we could, we stopped with fire, but at night some of them got into our tents and ate things we could ill spare. In the early morning a column of foraging ants appeared, and we drove them back, also with fire. When the sky was not overcast, the sun was very hot, and we spread out everything to dry. There were many wonderful butterflies round about, but only a few birds. Yet in the early morning and late afternoon there was some attractive bird music in the woods. The two best performers were our old friend, the false bellbird, with its series of ringing whistles, and a shy, attractive ants-rush. The latter walked much on the ground, with dainty movements, curtsying and raising its tail, and in accent and sequence, 
although not in tone or time, its song resembled that of our white-throated sparrow. It was three weeks since we had started down the river of Doubt. We had come along its winding course about one hundred and forty kilometers, with a descent of somewhere in the neighborhood of one hundred and twenty-four meters. It had been slow progress. We could not tell what physical obstacles were ahead of us, nor whether the Indians would be actively hostile. But a river normally describes in its course a parabola, the steep descent being in the upper part, and we hoped that in the future we should not have to encounter so many and such difficult rapids as we had already encountered, and that therefore we could make better time, a hope destined to failure. End of chapter 8